This episode of Earl Grey is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Hi, this is Robert O'Reilly. My name is Gowron. Honor to you and your house. You're listening to Trek FM. T.O. Gray Hospital. Welcome to another episode of Earl Grey, Trek FM's podcast dedicated to the next generation. I'm the chorus of your host, Amy Nelson, and joined with me today are Richard Marquez and Justin Oser. Well, my chorus was just killed by the Salayan, so I, Amy Nelson, am back here speaking. And Richard, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. Uh, who's going to clean this mess up? <laughs> well, they totally got disintegrated, so there's no mess here. There's some ashes right there. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Justin, how are you doing? I'm sad now. We've started with the tragedy. Oh, well, <laughs> there's much to be learned from every tragedy, and I think that we will see that as we go through today's episode, which is loud as a whisper. Now, before we get going, we do have some fan response from our last episode, uh, Earl Grey 209, where we talked about Admiral Necheyev. Unfortunately, I wasn't on this one. We had Brandy Jackala join us for that. And there was some great response from the Babel Conference. Uh, Christopher Baca said, speaking about Picard's decision in Iborg, it's a shame we really didn't get to follow up to it. Dissent sort of reset the Borg, so Picard's decision had no great impact. His decision could have had a worse impact on the Borg than just shutting their computer systems down with a math problem. Hey, now, math problems are always good. It would have been interesting to see either decision not work out like they thought. Having the math problem failing and leading into first contact since the Borg would see the Federation as a bigger threat than, the first, than they first determined. If they went with Picard's plan, seeing the Borg fractured as they try and deal with the ships doing their own thing would have made things interesting on Voyager. Of course, it would have changed the story for first contact. Well, thank you, Christopher. Some things to think about. And it would have been interesting to see uh, both situations take place. Definitely. I mean, and, and also this episode generated quite a lot of response, uh, particularly about Picard's uh, decision with Hugh in, in Iborg. So we can't read all of that. So you have to go to the Babel Conference to, um, to, to see all of that. But we do have a few more um, you know, samplings of, of that feedback. Uh, so, listener Grace Lillianne Alexandra Archell Thompson, I uh, hope I got all that right, 
uh, said, just got round to this one, and it's funny because I was just having a conversation with a friend today about moral choices and the needs of the many outweighing the few, but not necessarily being the right choice, only the easy one when presented with a dilemma. However, with the Picard-Borg decision, I think of it from the point of view that the Borg are such a high danger to the galaxy, tied in with those people under Borg control being both slaves and unable to regain quality of life back, even if breaking away from the Borg in many cases. Couldn't it be considered the humane thing to do euthanizing them, rather than considering it destruction of life by destroying the Borg? Yeah, thank you for that comment. Very, there was a lot of thought-provoking conversation about this one, wasn't there? Yeah, definitely. And I sort of thought the same thing of, you know, that these Borg are slaves and wouldn't it be the humane thing to do to destroy them? Because it's not like they are, you know, regenerating or not that they are, you know, I don't know, having Borg babies. They are assimilating others. They're assimilating others. Yeah. You know, and so that assimilation is taking away others' freedoms. And and so is it really a species like that? It's, I don't know. It's tough when you talk about them as, as slaves, though, because, you know, in, in history, we wouldn't want to have the, the policy that there's nothing to be done and no redemption that's possible. But in this case with the Borg, I think it's kind of a could be considered a special circumstance, right? So... Eric Bogan says, this was a very interesting episode for me. I actually always thought of Necheyev as a bad moral until I listened to these perspectives. As a major DS9 fan, I rewatched the Maquis many more times than any of her other appearances. So I've always perceived her as disconnected from what actually is going on and not willing to listen to any of her subordinates input, just like so many of the other admirals who appear in DS9. I had forgotten how sympathetic she was to Picard's positions in Journey's End. I also guess her appearance in The Search didn't do much for my perception of her either. Looking forward to re-watching some of her TNG appearances. Oh, so glad to, to hear that, that uh, that's getting someone to re-watch some of those episodes and, and see the character in a different light. I think that's one of the things we definitely wanted to do. Uh, Joy Slawinski? I, I hope that's correct. I, I apologize if I butchered your na- or your last name. Uh, I love Admiral Nateyev. She's one of my favorite admirals, and I never had a bad impression of her. I always thought she was a tough cookie who knew how to get the job done, and that's how she had ascended to her okay into her rank. I'm sorry, and importance. I appreciate when I saw Captain Picard actually make an effort to have the same relationship with her that he seemed to have with all of the other admirals in the fleet. Good thoughts, guys. Yes. Yeah, thanks for all the yeah. feedback. Yep, it was a very good episode. Sorry I missed it, but Brandy did a stellar job filling in for me. Yeah, definitely. Well, I am so excited to do this episode review on Loud as a Whisper. Um, it's just one of my favorites. And when I hear people say, oh, I don't like season one or season two, this episode always pops in my head. And I'm like, how can you not like the seasons? Now I know a season isn't just one episode, but I feel that this episode has so many themes threaded out that it really needs uh, a good discussion. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, but Justin, why don't you give us a brief synopsis of the episode so our listeners know what episode we're actually talking about. Sure. So here's Memory Alpha's very brief synopsis. The Enterprise brings a deaf negotiator to mediate the end of a planetary civil war. 
I think it's about oh, a lot come more on than now. that. Justin. <laughs> well, we agreed last time so that I wouldn't make a mistake like saying Doros was worse father that we go from memory alpha for the synopsis. <laughs> but no, it, it is definitely about uh, more than that. Probably if I were to give a synopsis myself, I mean, it's kind of hard because there's a lot of kind of abstract concepts about peace and negotiation and disability and all of the, it's kind of hard to give you know, a, a summary of the episode, but like, if you were to give a summary, what would it be, Amy? Well, I would say this is the one where we have the deaf mediator, uh, to come and get these two warring factions together. And I think that would be good enough because people I would hope would remember the deaf mediator. Yeah. And I guess you could add that in the midst of it, he has this chorus that interprets for him, the chorus dies and he has to has to adjust to that. That's kind of the yeah. other part of it. Yeah. So this idea of the chorus is so interesting to me. I mean, cause we, when Reva explains it, he has these three people and without it, we see that he explains that the chorus is not just speaking for him, but it's revealing his emotion of his words. And so when Data actually learns the sign language and is speaking for Reva, like Data's speaking the words, but he's not giving the emotion. And so that's missing as well. And when I was going to university, my minor uh, was communications. And um, when I was in middle school as teaching, I developed and taught a communication course for, for middle school. And I used this clip um, of the chorus and how he was introducing the chorus uh, to launch one of my lessons uh, in hopes to have this discussion with my kids and how they use intonation um, to, you know, convey your emotion that it's not just words. And Reva explains that there are these three voices. The first one is the scholar, and that is the speaks for the intellect, the judge, the philosopher, and also the dreamer, artist, and poet. And I thought, wow, that's pretty interesting for this first one to have so much importance because I wouldn't think to put the intellect, the judge, the philosopher with the dreamer, artist, and poet. Does that make sense to you guys? Why, why do you think that they put those attributes into one person? It's a good question because, you know, before really thinking about the breakdown of all of the things that are included, I tend to, as a shorthand, think of the scholar as logic and passion, which is the next one as, as emotion. But, you know, it, there's a, there can be a lot of emotion that is associated with being a dreamer, an artist, or, or a poet. So it's, um, it, but it's interesting to, to talk about it as the scholar because we might usually think of, of a scholar as someone who who studies something and is very, you know, serious about their their studies. Um, I mean, an artist and poet can, you know, study certain things, but we think of them kind of separately. I'm I'm not sure. I mean, what do you think, Richard, about combining all that stuff together? Um, actually, I think it makes sense. Um, it um, each one of those characteristics uh, deal with original thought, and mm -hmm. um, you need to have you need to have you know, some kind of, you got to have intellect in order to have, well, have it, have it. <laughs> but like, I mean, each one of them, uh, creates, uh, creates it on their own or it creates it within your, within yourself. And 
I guess you have to have some kind of um, I don't know I, I, a basis of of, of, of like an original thought to, in order to even dream, create art, be a poet, judge, and also philosopher, and then I guess intellect will go with all three, with all four or five of them. Hmm. So um, that that's how I'm seeing it. Why they were all combined is because they need an actual original thought in order to do any of them. Yeah, so. I really like that because yeah, when I look at being a philosopher, you are studying you know, society and this idea of thought, which then takes you to the next step of being a dreamer, this artist and poet. So oh, I like that. Good job, Richard. Well, this, <laughs> <laughs> the second person that was introduced to us is passion. He's the romantic lover and warrior. And for me, this makes perfect sense. Like love and hate, those extremes, those emotions, that that passion just it combines so well together but if the other one's about original thought would that mean you know romantic lover warrior tends to be just from like a certain template of behavior not as much original thought right well, probably a reaction to that uh to whatever's mm -hmm. um being said or done like i would ask uh, i would probably add in their anger as well but yeah. i guess anger is it could be um you know coupled in with warrior so yeah definitely yeah, well, like we were talking, original thought, this would be original emotion, maybe. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I could see that. Mm -hmm. And then the third one uh, is harmony, and uh, that is wisdom and balance. So combining them all together. And interesting that the first two were uh, depicted as male, and harmony is female. Thoughts on that? I don't know if that would fly today. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, given given that uh, a lot of people want to be, uh, are, are, are there, there's no stereotype that men are always, you know, the scholar or you know, and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, and being being the society that we are now, that everyone has to be included on everything, um, I, it would that would not fly today. <laughs> yeah, I, w I wonder if. Um if you were to redo the episode, if you might actually like expand it somehow to, to four and make two of them male, two of them female, something like that. But I mean, the, 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 yeah, I mean, having the, the scholar as someone who's male, that's, that's a stereotype, but having passion as someone who's male, maybe so also, because I think in certain parts of the script, he's referred to as like Adonis. <laughs> so it's like this male ideal of passion, but yeah, it's an interesting choice that, that I hadn't really thought too much about. Yeah, there's definitely some gender roles um, that are being displayed here, and we're not gonna go too much into it. I just found it interesting. Mm -hmm. And I think nowadays you could, the, the sex of the chorus wouldn't really matter um, because you've got women who are just as passionate, women who are just as scholar, men who show and display harmony. So. I think the gender roles nowadays um, is more equal right now. Well, if this was your chorus, which one would you be using the most? Like maybe give us a percentage, like think about in your life and listeners, I would be interested to know for you, like what percentage would these three chorus be speaking for you? Justin? Well, How much scholar, passion, and harmony do you 
use in your daily life? Yeah, it's 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 an interesting question because I I would say that um, for the the scholar that tends to be you know a a, a good percentage. Oh, you're asking me to have like exact percentages well, <laughs> estimate. <laughs> that was just the math teacher in me. Yeah, that yeah. just seemed easy to. Well, for me. I mean, I. Yeah, I, I, I guess if I were to really think about it, it would probably be something like the scholar would be 40%, the harmony would be 40%, and the passion would be like 20%. Because I feel like that passion part is expressed just in like certain parts of, of my life. And in most of my life when I'm, you know, at my job or doing a podcast or something, I'm kind of taking advantage of, of the other parts of it. But but like balance and, and harmony are really interest, uh, important for me. And that's why I'd put it as just important as the scholar. So Richard, how about you? Uh, I don't know. hundred <laughs> um, percent harmony. Uh, no. <laughs> no. Um, I'd say, I don't know. I'd probably be on the same line as Justin, but mine would be 40% scholar, but it would be a lot higher with passion hmm. uh, than it is harmony. But then again, there's that wisdom piece to it. So, um, I don't know. 30 for, or for, uh, 40 for scholar. Probably 44 uh, passion because I think they're pre uh, pretty much equal, and then the rest is harmony. Mm. <laughs> Way to go for my 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 math. <laughs> <laughs> Add it up to 100. We can do there you this. Go. <laughs> well, and, 20. There you go. And since since you've asked us, what about you, Amy? Well, um, as I was looking at this and you know thinking of this question myself, I. I think that as I get older, my harmony is speaking more because I've learned to temper uh, the passion and the scholar. I think sometimes in my life, especially while I spend so much time as a teacher, and so like I have my teacher voice, and that definitely is the scholar. Um, and I try to get that dreamer and expose the beauty of math to my students. So I think that the scholar for me is where I speak the most. And definitely the passion is the least, because I think for me that tends to make me more vulnerable when you're showing that much emotion. So I would have to say 50% scholar, 40% harmony, and 10% passion. Hmm. Interesting. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So you love more. <laughs> <laughs> See, but if you're talking about like in in your in your daily life, though, like think about how much time you might spend, like you know, at at work or or doing tasks where this you know, like passion of romance and love and warrior and libido and all of that would might get in the way of what you're doing, right? Well, but I mean, <laughs> it, it passion doesn't necessarily have to involve, you know sex or or libido or anything exactly. like that it could be passion for it, it very well could be 60 percent passion for amy because she loves to do uh math work yeah. or 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 what you teaching, know te teaching yeah. math yeah teaching this one man yeah <laughs> but like teaching math and that i mean obviously that can fluctuate i mean it can't be static i mean yeah. it'll fluctuate depending on this on the situation too but i so. think there's a difference between how we might think of passion like passion for 
um, and interests like math or Star Trek and how it's portrayed mm-hmm. in the episode. Mm-hmm. Because in the episode, like this passion part of the chorus specifically says, I am passion, the libido, the anarchy of lust, the romantic and the lover. I am also the warrior, the perfect line which never wavers. So that at least the way it's described yeah. there for this character, it's very much on that that you know spectrum of of like you know love and romance right well yeah and and that's where i think like that raw emotion you know where you're completely overtaken with this feeling whether it is for love passion you know war anger stuff like that so uh to me for me in my life that i try to suppress i'm more the logical Mm. i'm more vulcan that way for me for me (laughs) yeah so all right moving along all right (laughs) (laughs) well i I just wanted to touch on this real quickly so it was interesting because he explains that his chorus you know it has been used his ancestors have used it he was born deaf and he hopes to remain deaf um but his course is being used for his purposes. And I know the episode doesn't really go into it, but isn't that sort of like slavery? I mean, there's been this other, and I say, quote unquote, symbiotic relationships in the Federation. A couple I was thinking of, well, the one that really came out to me was in Enterprise season two, episode 22, Cogenitor, where they're using this third party to have their children. Right. Do you remember yes. that episode? Uh, yeah. And I think on the outline, you mentioned the trill, which is even more symbiotic. They kind of live together in that symbiosis all the time. Well, all the time after they're joined. Yeah. And so how do we feel about these other people being used for your or for his purposes? Like, how do we feel about that? Well, I mean, I think in in this case, you know, one of the things that that he that they talk about is that Riva is part of this ruling line, and he and they talk about you know other ruling lines. I think like they talk about the Hanovers on Earth that had hemophilia and it was you know genetic, and apparently for him it's genetic that that he doesn't have the ability to hear sound. So it seems like he is part of some like ruling class or some kind of royalty almost and these are like his servants that serve him so i don't think it's it's any different than uh, you know when you have a monarchy and there are are servants that basically have their livelihood provided by providing services now we could argue whether they're a part of that of their own free will but we don't know much about this circumstance how it develops is it like they're groomed for that in their childhood and how do they know how to interpret for him. They must be telepathic in some way and connected yes. into what's happening in his mind. So how does that develop? When does it, I don't think we know enough to really kind of understand it more and put a judgment on it, but I think it's, it does seem like their life is pretty much all about like serving him and his needs, right? So he's, yes. they're like his and servants. that's questionable. Yeah. Either that, he's rich as hell and you know, He's paying them pretty good money. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you know, I, honestly, I was just thinking about this. I was like, you know, reading over this outline, uh, I was like thinking, it's like, you know, honestly, if this was like a true utopian and that we're going the direction that, that what's going on in medical science and all that kind of stuff, this wouldn't exist. <laughs> but um, yeah, 
Well, I, I don't I, mean, I don't know if if Riva and his society are part of the Federation or outside of it and used using their services for negotiation. Well, know. yeah, but I'm yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it just comes into play like I would like to know that the chorus had their own choice and free will mm-hmm. and wanted to serve Riva that way and not being forced to. I guess that's because you know be, so many times yeah i mean that would be good that would be good to know um yeah although like based on what we can see in the episode it seems like they're fairly happy in doing what they're doing but we don't really get to know much about them as people when reva's not there yeah definitely so well another very important uh theme of this episode is conflict i mean obviously reva is the best mediator and is known to be so he says he's very confident actually and says that he's never uh not been successful um and the solans chose him and they would they are reva is the only one that they were willing to speak with now, when he goes to the conference room with Picard and he wants, they want to give him the details on why the conflict started. And Reva's like, it doesn't matter why it started. They've been fighting for 15 centuries. So the original dispute is no longer relevant. And then he asks, what is the new piece of the puzzle? Why do they want peace now? Like what's the, something had to have happened where they wanted to have peace. And it was interesting, like, you know, Riker is like, well, maybe they're running out of people to kill, you mm-hmm. know, and, you know, Data didn't really have an explanation for it. Um, so I thought that was very interesting. And like, have you been in a conflict where the original reason is no longer the cause? Actually, Amy, before we get into that, I want to go back a little bit to what Riva was saying, because I think it's important for this this discussion. So. He, he does, well, the scholar speaking for him says that the specific issues don't have relevance. And, you know, Riker is asking why that's the case. Um, and and he's saying through, through the scholar that, um, you know, the information will indicate the conflict is over a piece of land or wealth or some other tangible asset. But we know, both know that is not the case. And Riker comes to an understanding they've been at war for so long it has become personal. And then the scholar says exactly the basis for peace must also be personal. And I think that's something really interesting when you think about conflicts that go on for a while, that it's really not about the issues at all. It's something that's, that's personal. So I, I, like if, if that's true, then if we're thinking about like a conflict where the original reason is no longer the cause, then it has become something that's, that's more personal, I would think, right? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So what, you know, has there been, well, I'll I'll start because when I was thinking of this, not that, um, I think, okay, let me start over. So as I was thinking about this, I sometimes become the mediator in teaching as a teacher and sometimes have to mediate between students and parents and You know, when students have been failing for so long and the parents just have no idea what to do, it's like, well, it doesn't matter what was done in the past because we just need to start with where we are right now. And if the student wants to be successful, the parents want to be successful. And so we sort of start from that ground. Um, There was a time uh, specifically in my family, my sister, um, and well, my nephew, 
had just, he was almost ready to flunk out of high school. He was not being successful. He wasn't doing anything to any of his homework or anything. And he just had all these excuses of why he wasn't doing it. And I just sort of came in and we had a little powwow, my sister and her husband, my nephew and me. And we just like, okay, where can we start right now? You know, and not saying that it was me, but they both decided to come together um, to try and create this harmony because it was not doing so well in the household and stuff. But I think that coming at that, you know, of it doesn't matter why my nephew was being unsuccessful. He, we just needed to have a starting point and to move forward from there. Well, I guess I had a different a, a kind of kind of example. Okay. Be- because, you know, I, I haven't talked about this too much here, but I've had some difficulty with my my parents o- over the years, and um, I actually don't really talk to them at, at this point because of some things that happened. But it feels like, you know, if I look at it from this perspective, that there were some original conflicts or things that happened. And eventually when that break happens, it is something that's very personal. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to, to see you. It becomes very personal. And the kind of reasons for getting to that point get kind of lost over time. And yeah. it becomes ends up becoming something that's more personal so that's that's what i what i think about and if there were to be you know some kind of change that it would have to be you know a a personal kind of interaction or or change as well so i think there there's actually a lot of wisdom in what's said in just those those few lines for how these things work richard unburden yourself (laughs) <laughs> unburdened myself where do i start the psychiatrist charges 15 cents a minute i get it <laughs> um i don't know i that no longer the uh, the the original reason is no longer the cause i i i'm in the same boat as you justin uh with my own parents but um i think uh, when when i when i had uh, so obviously I had lots of troubles with my parents right before I left for the military Hmm. and it continued over, uh, for various reasons. And even, even, even getting out of the military was, it was pretty hard to even get along with them. And yeah, I was in the same boat as you. I didn't really talk to them for a very long time actually. And, or at least communication was sporadic. And I think, I think when it, uh, when it came to what it, what came, <laughs> what changed all that <laughs> uh, was that uh, I had my daughter. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the, I mean, even though that her mom and I are no longer together and whatnot, it, it's one of the things that I've always taught my daughter is that you need, to, uh, you need to have open communication with your family. And now cousins, uncles, okay, you know, you don't you necessarily have to uh, keep up with that. But at least talk to your grandparents and your parents and then your brothers and sisters. And at that time when I said that, and this was when she was like four or five, uh, <laughs> I was a hypocrite. Uh, cause I didn't talk to anyone mm-hmm. family. I mean, my sister, uh, my, bro- both my brothers and, or actually all three of my brothers, uh, and, and even my parents. So, and funny enough, I think that that lesson came from Star Trek. 
actually come to think of it, I can't remember where I where I remember that from. I mean, because like there's a lot of things I uh, tell her that are from Star Trek. <laughs> Lo and behold, we're on a podcast. <laughs> but like um, one of the things that I told uh, I told her was that you know you need to make sure you keep those relationships open because you don't want to burn those bridges down just in case you do need help in, in later in the future. Whether that be me, your mom, your sister, or well, not sister, future siblings mm. not saying anything <laughs> but like and then same thing with your grandparents and your closest cousins and all that kind of stuff and that's ultimately the lesson and ever since then um the relation even though even though there are some things that i it really irritates me about my my dad and my mom and everyone in my family i've still managed to find a way to find a common ground to make peace with them and for the sake of Eva and my future children and also my new wife um, to create that bond and family. So I felt it was, I felt it was very important uh, to mend those relationships uh, because my daughter, I mean, needs a family here in Colorado and the rest of her family is in California. So I can't alienate my daughter like that from family. So, yeah, but yeah. Original cause was not, I mean, the original reason was not, <laughs> it was definitely not the uh, cause now, but I've tried, I've tried and learned to get around that. Yeah. Has it gone, co- completely gone away, but it, for the most part it has. Mm-hmm. So. Where now it's functioning and yeah. Uh, I don't know about functioning. Well, yes, semi. <laughs> they were there at your wedding. I met them. Yes, that's true. That is very true. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Well, one of my favorite all-time quotes, I've almost had this like put up in my classroom, um, is when uh, after the chorus was killed and Reva sort of goes into his loss and this is where Counselor Deanna Troy is going to step up and say, well, I'm going to give it a try before we leave because, you know, it's too important. And she goes to Reva and says, hey, what's the trick? What do you do? How are you such a good mediator? And, you know, Reva explains, well, it's not really anything. It's just, you know, you have to turn a disadvantage into an advantage. And then Troy spins that right around and says, why can't you do that? Why can't you turn this disadvantage into advantage? I totally love that. She so clinches it right there and makes Reva think about, well, yeah, why don't I do it? It's so... I just think it's so funny because like you say the words, but then when they're given back to you, it's like, oh, that's what it means. (laughs) Anyways, I love that. So I just made me thinking about, you know, like when you're how do you make lemonade when given lemons? Like how I know it's so difficult, but how do you turn a disadvantage into an advantage? You know, I think it's a really tough thing because like when I I remember when I first saw this episode and the chorus was killed, I thought, like, how are they going to to move forward and make this work? And up to the point where they're talking about turning a disadvantage into an advantage, I didn't quite know where that was going. But then when you see what he does in the end with taking the time to teach them sign language because he no longer has his chorus, it's brilliant. It's like this this amazing breakthrough that I never would have thought of myself. So I actually have a lot of difficulty with that. If I had like a big disadvantage, turning that into an advantage, I mean, and in this case turns it into something that 
probably has more of a chance of success than his traditional approach in, in this one. It's it's brilliant. I mean, and every time I see it, I, I love it. And I was definitely surprised the first time I saw it, how they resolved it. It was just so satisfying. Well, and plus, like, he's going through some serious loss. I mean, mm-hmm. he loses his chorus. Not only is it his ability to communicate, but as he says, they were my friends. And that he never really understood how much they meant to him until they are gone. And I just think, yeah, when you're in such a painful place in your heart and he just wants to retreat, he doesn't want to do anything. He doesn't want to be mediator anymore. Like to have that switch is just so it is, it's what makes the episode so great is having that realization of how he can use that and teach them sign language and have them come, the Salayans come together and build that bridge through his loss. Yeah, I mean, Richard, have you had something in your life where you've had to turn disadvantage into advantage? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, to be quite, I mean, the first thought I thought was Iraq, but I was like, no, that's that's not that's not really a disadvantage. It's more like survival. Um, <laughs> but like, um, I don't know. To be quite honest, I mean. I can't really say I can't. I'd have to think of uh, think on it a little bit more longer because, to yeah. be I mean to be quite honest, I mean, one of the things that I always try to do when whenever I come up with I mean especially like in work, um, I, I try to I, I I do try to I, I guess I could use work as an example. Um, one of the things that um, I I do. Uh, it's because because I'm a senior at uh, at, uh, at my job and and sometimes we get hard headed people. Um, uh, coming out of the military or out of the civilian workforce or, or whatnot. And sometimes the, the way the process works in the, um, uh, what, what, what we do and everything is that you have to follow these regulations pretty much by the number, uh, for the most part, there are very few, um, gray areas where you have to go outside of that. And one of the thing one of the things recently is that, I got. A, I had a guy that um, wanted to wanted to go outside those lines and trying to find. Uh, and eventually, we found. I mean, after a while, we uh, we butted heads, but eventually, we found common ground that he wants to be. He wants to do the veteran uh, right, which I agree with. <laughs> I totally agree with. But we gotta do. We gotta go through uh, the proper channels. And finally, um, actually, he's one of my one. Of, I don't want to say favorite. Uh, he's one of my best workers uh, out there. And, um, you know, there, there was a point in time where we absolutely hated each other. Mm. And then it, we, we finally, fi- we, we both figured it out on the same, uh, same grounds that we're trying to help the veteran, help me, help you sort of thing. And mm. it eventually changed wow. finally after a couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, all I can say is I'd have to think about it more, uh, to come up with, with a good example, because it's, it is a little tough to think about that, but do you have like an example from your own life, Amy? Well, when I was thinking about this, I, um, yes, I do have an example. Um, so I've always wanted to have kids, but it never happened in part because I didn't want to be a single parent. And so with that sort of guiding and then not getting married and stuff, it's like, okay, well, here is this disadvantage of never becoming a mother. 
And so turning that into an advantage, I just, I think I just more had to change my frame of mind and thoughts about it um, to turn that into an advantage where, you know, I can be the favorite aunt. Um, I can, you know, with being single, I get to travel and do things that a lot of, you know, parents don't get to do. Like there's experiences in life and you're not going to be able to experience everything. And so I've just sort of accepted that, well, I'm not going to experience that, but look at all the other experiences that I get to do in this life and to treasure those and to, you know, make my lemonade out of those experiences and not really cry over the ones that I don't have. Because there's going to be times, I think, in everyone's life, because you're not going to be able to, you know, do everything. So I think that's sort of how I've turned it into an advantage, just more along of changing my thought process on that. Hmm. Well, uh, I I actually thought of something while you were talking, actually. Good. Um, So about uh, five years ago, I'd been working for a company for about seven years and doing some customer service and sales, and the company got sold, so I was going to lose my job within a couple months. And, you know, I kind of looked around, and I couldn't really find... Um, you know, any kind of, of job, but we were getting, you know, like a, a severance package. And, you know, I talked about it with, with my wife and we just kind of decided, okay, maybe we should do something a little bit different. So we were living in the, uh, in the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area at the time. And we decided, um, I always wanted to move to the Northwest, that we would just move to, to Washington State. We actually moved to this small town where we didn't really know anybody. Um, just to kind of see what the experience would be like and hoping to maybe set up a business there. Just something like that was a break that would be a little bit different. And during that time, as, as it happened, um, you know, I, I did have someone that I worked with at, at the previous company and they had moved on to, to another company and, you know, happened to, to offer me an opportunity. And that's, and I don't, I'm not sure if I would have taken advantage of that kind of thing, which has been really like good for me in the last five years and like having a different career and doing something different. If I hadn't taken that break and actually moved somewhere else as like a clean break and doing something different. So that kind of disadvantage of, you know, losing my job and, and just having a certain amount of savings going somewhere else because we just needed a break and it was something different seemed to be a disadvantage, but it was actually an advantage for doing what I've come to do over the last four or five years. So, yeah. Yeah. That was <laughs> a great example. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and it was a big risk too, because we only had a certain amount of money that was going to, you know, run out after a couple right. months. Yeah. But, but yeah. Yeah. Nice. Well, where, a subplot. Where you, uh, oh, sorry. go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask where, uh, where did you uh, go? Or uh, what, what city in, uh, uh, or what town in Washington? The tiniest town in the smallest, most rural county in the state. It was a little town called Kathlamet, which had like a thousand people uh, in the tiny, in this tiny county that's in the southwest of Washington on the Columbia River. But it was such a beautiful area. And it was something that was so inspirational just to be there, even though we were only there for a short time before we had to, to move about six months. But, but it was also interesting living in a real small town, which I hadn't done before and the the kind of um the kind of things that you see in a small town the camaraderie and the trust and all of that it was kind of helpful also in, in having a break and moving forward to something something different so 
Yeah, but a tiny town you've never been to and never heard of, which is such an interesting experience. Yeah, and especially coming from the Bay Area where there's tons of people. Yeah, millions of people, tons of traffic. It was a very, very different different experience, but it was very rewarding to to move from that to, to something else, as much as I had enjoyed being in the Bay Area for like 15 years before that. A subplot of this episode talks about disability. And when Reva meets Jordy for the first time, he asks about his visor, and they both agree that their disability makes up who they are and wouldn't change it. And I just love how Star Trek rejoices in diversity and recognizes not a disability, but a difference and how we are to appreciate the differences, the differences that make each of us special. It's interesting to note the actor who plays Reva, Howie Sego, he's deaf and he approached the show's producers with the idea of a deaf mediator. The initial idea came from his wife, who's a Star Trek fan. The writers originally wanted Sego's character to learn to speak after his course is killed, but Sego was opposed to the idea as it could perpetuate the practice of forcing deaf children to speak. The producers were understanding of his concerns and wrote a new draft, which is why we see the Soleans learning sign language instead of Riva learning to speak. Now, when I heard that, I was like, wow, I did not know this. I knew Riva, the actor, he was deaf and stuff, but I didn't know that it had come from this whole idea came from him and initially from his wife. Yeah, it's amazing. And it is, I think, as you mentioned before, one of those things that elevates it from a good to a great episode. And it would have been, I think, disappointing if it was just like, oh, he learns how to speak and and he can get past that. But it's much, it's a much more transformative thing to, again, to talk about turning the disadvantage into an advantage instead of just kind of trying to to change and, and, and be the same as, as others might be. Um, and I think I, I saw also that he was glad that that he was in this production because if it was somebody who was not uh, like actually deaf, they might not have said something to try to change the the direction of it. But yeah, I mean that's it's a it's a great story and it made this episode so much better and so much uh, have so much more of an impact. Yeah. Yeah. Now the part with Jordy, I wanted to say something about that. Go um, for it. Like, in rewatching this, in the context of the episode, the part with Jordy seems to be way, a little bit out of place because Pulaski, I think maybe you're talking about the scene with Pulaski where she's saying, oh, we can, uh, you know, have something to replace your visor. You'll have almost the same vision. You won't have all this pain you've been experiencing. And I think they put that in there because LeVar Burton at some point wanted to be able to, you know, show his eyes, <laughs> which happened much later. But um, it seems a little weird to plan it in there. And as I was thinking about it, I was trying to make a, a connection. I mean, because he has this, this disability. And when, uh, when LaForge meets with, with Riva, they, they really understand each other. And he's the only one that kind of reciprocates the gesture and puts his hand on Riva's chest, like Riva puts his hand on you know, Riker's chest and all that. Um, so, I mean, it does point up talking about uh, disability and whether it makes sense to do something to, to kind of navigate around that. But I mean, do you see it, Amy, as like reinforcing some of the themes in the episode? Because when I see it, it's a little bit jarring. Like that scene with Pulaski seems a little unrelated. Oh, I thought it fit in nicely because, you know, we see Reva and his deafness, but he, you know, wouldn't change it. Well, he couldn't change it as we learn later from Pulaski. Um, 
But I think that there is this theme that we see throughout the series with Jordy and his eyes and his disability. And, you know, when he's down on with the Romulan and it's like, well, you wouldn't even be born because we would have killed you because you have this disability you can't see. And so I think it just sort of sets up this whole idea throughout the entire series that, you know, Jordy has been given an option to have regular vision. I mean, Pulaski has done it twice before that we learn. Um, and so he sort of ponders it and yet chooses not to have his eyes changed or his sight given regular sight because of what he sees now through his visor. I, I think it fits in perfectly with this episode. Richard, what do you think? I, 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 do, I do too. I mean, ultimately... She's trying to fix it, or Pulaski's trying to fix a disability that Jordy is, in a sense, um, you know, he's thinking about it in the beginning, and and basically at the end, he's um, saying, "No, I want to keep it the way it is." After I'm sure talking to Reba, um, uh, that motivation to, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm happy with who I am, and this is who I am, and if I change it, then it ruins or possibly even destroys my identity. So, um, yeah, I think that's a very important piece to have that in there that, um, yeah, to not, um, you know, be happy with who you are, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But but what changes with how he feels here, which is in like the second season, and then by the time we get to first contact, he does have ocular implants. Like what's changed in his thinking by then? I don't think that's any change. I think those ocular implants did not replace his eyes to regular vision. I think the ocular implants are exactly what he sees with the visor. It's just now they're internal instead of external. I don't think, well, as we know, his eyesight is not what we see. It is still getting all the... EM waves and whatever, you know, he's he still seeing through his visor. Spectrum apparently with his visor. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what his ocular implants do. And in first hmm. contact, he could zoom in. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. I hadn't really thought about that, that it might do the same thing as the visor, but just be a different, like. No, it's tool. exactly the same thing. It doesn't, because Pulaski was giving him a chance to have regular eyes. To, to regenerate his optic nerve, right? Something yeah. Something like that, yeah. The okay. visor and the ocular implants do not do that. It is still getting okay. all the spectrum and stuff. I'll take that. I, I don't know if we had that much of an explanation, like, in first contact about it, but I think it makes sense. Wouldn't you think that would be standard issue to have a visor? Because, <laughs> I mean, if you can see everything, why wouldn't everyone have Well, that? but, but I mean, they talk about in here that Jordy has pain because of it, and he has to learn no, no, no. how to I, filter no, I get through that. all of it. No, I know I get that, but I'm just saying, like, a, like an actual visor, like, to take someone on a away mission oh. or something like that, you could see everything and be like, oh, well, okay, kind of yeah, like, you won't miss anything. Like a heads-up display you have now, that kind of thing? Right, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Or like night vision goggles and just, okay, I'm going to put on the visor so I can see. Right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Like a or even thermals or thermals or something like that. Yeah. That, All makes, right. that makes some sense. They didn't know about that in like 1989. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. All right. So after this discussion, why don't you give us our, your final thoughts, Justin, on Loud as a Whisper? Well, I think, as I said before, this is one of my favorite episodes. I think there's there's a lot of really great wisdom and a lot of great things to, to think about. Um, and usually when I think about this episode, I think about um, 
negotiating peace and trying to get past conflict, dealing with loss, um, and of course turning disadvantage into advantage, I think is one of the most profound things that's that's in here. But I, I, I like the way that you structure this, Amy, because at first when you know we thought about this episode and you wanted to talk about it, I thought it would just be, you know, we just talk through the different parts of it kind of freeform. But I like that you were asking us questions about it. Uh, about the episode and about our personal experience, because you know it's clear one of the lessons in the episode is that if there is to be conflict resolution, because conflicts tend to become personal over time, the basis for peace needs to become personal. So it's kind of like the basis for this discussion needs to be personal as well. And I really appreciate that. Richard, what did you think of this episode? Oh, what did I think about this episode? Well, um... Originally, Do you like the episode? I didn't. Okay, fair <laughs> I enough. Mean, before this, before this, um, this episode, I actually did not like it. Um, it's not. It's not one of my favorites. I mean, it's definitely in my top one seventy eight. Oh, jeez. Um, <laughs> oh, no. But how do you feel early. about it now? <laughs> oh, okay. No, I was just got to get there. <laughs> okay, but like um, thinking about it in a way. Um, that you know talking about uh how we uh, how we perceive things and whatnot and be in this disability and whatnot i actually kind of like it um well i'm warming up to it how about let's 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 just say that um and is I'm it at least in to your it. top 50 percent like i said uh, the top 178 <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay um no just, yeah i it'd probably be in the top uh 50 i'll give you that but um yeah i mean it's definitely one of those episodes that i'm like eh. I, I I skip over it, but like thinking about it in more detail, in the sense of um, you know uh, turning turning a disadvantage into into an advantage, uh, sure is a is a great moral uh, to the story. So I I'm warming up to it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like I said, this is one of my favorite episodes, uh, especially for season two, and again because it's a Troy centered episode because she really does it for me there. And the episode and ends with Picard saying to her, thank you, well done. I know. And <laughs> it's so, I mean, the smile on her face is just, as she's, you can tell she's blushing and she's appreciative of Picard recognizing her contributions to this mission. And so, of course, we love it. I love it for that. Um, but I just, I really love the themes and the idea of communicating and how do you communicate again, it's not just through your words, you know, cause if I send a text or an email, like you can't hear my intonation, you can't hear the meaning behind it and you can interpret it any way that you want. But when I speak it with my, you know, emotion and my intonation, like you understand me better. That's why face-to-face -face communication is so much better. So I just love the idea of communication. And again, conflict resolution, like you talked on, it's just there's so many awesome, good themes within this episode that just to me really radiates that this is a Star Trek episode. This is what Trek is to me. And so that's why I wanted to discuss it. Excellent. Well, I it's also one of my favorites. So it's, you managed to mask for most of the episode that it's, <laughs> that it's not one you really like, Richard. But that's the beauty of how you did the discussion, Amy. It, 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 it's in a certain way, it didn't matter what you thought of the episode. It was more reflecting mm -hmm. on personal experience, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Totally. 
Well, it's been fun talking about Loud as a Whisper, but that isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on the network. Here's what you might have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Earl Grey. It's sort of what she did with Picard and just said, I'm looking at the entire expanse of your career decisions and these decisions, you've broken the prime directive. And and so looking at this mass, it sort of brought it back to conspiracy where it's like, yeah, you're going to find something and there may be excuses for it, but what's the pattern overall? I thought it was an interesting twist that she did against Picard. Warp 5. The reason why I'm surprised by this is because you don't see a lot of asexual reproduction in higher order life forms um, because sexual reproduction allows for genetic diversity, uh, whereas, again, asexual reproduction dictates genetically identical individuals. The 602 Club. What happened last season and the things that start to happen this season is, you know, Jay comes in and tells them about the danger from or two with Zoom and everything, you can see the weight that it's having on this person. And I thought that that's just really good writing. Like, you know, that that you can't stay that same kind of person that he was in the beginning here. Um, And they're going to do some things throughout the season that are going to help Barry kind of overcome that, um, or at least try to overcome that. But... At the beginning, I just I, I really felt like that the writing was very strong, specifically for the character of Barry and everything he'd been through in that first season, and now into the second season. Literary treks. Yeah, that's definitely the case. I I think for sure. Well, in this novel, it's uh, very much about the Klingons and their society, and. It's from the perspective for the mo- there's there's a framing story basically in which uh, Captain Kirk starts reading a book called The Final Reflection, which is told from the perspective of the Klingons, and and it's ostensibly the book that we are reading here. This is the book that Kirk's reading in this book. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Earl Grey. That will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. So Amy, where can people find you when you're not serving as part of Reva's Chorus? Well, you can find me here on the network. I'm hosting Postcards from the Edge, which is now going for our 
uh, Star Trek Discovery podcast where I talk about the fan response of each episode. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Miss Amy Nelson, but my favorite place is right here on the Babel Conference. Richard, where can people contact you when you're not cosplaying as Worf? <laughs> uh, nowhere, because I don't stop. <laughs> well, they can find me um, on Facebook. I'm also on the Babel Conference where I prop in here and there. And uh, I'm also on Twitter. My handle is Eric's Ransom, where I have yet to share anything yet <laughs> with my dog. If you, it, It's all on Instagram. <laughs> so, anyway. <laughs> so, Justin, where can people f- uh, contact you when you're not negotiating peace treaties? Well, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at TrekFan4747, where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek. I am currently continuing tweeting out my rewatch of Season 4 of uh, TNG. And I tweet about Discovery a lot, especially now that it's uh, coming back on for the second half of season one. And you can also find me hanging around the Babel Conference on Facebook. If you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope that you'll join the team. Again, you'll find the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take this opportunity to recognize our current associate producers. They are Norman Lau, Justin Ozer, and Michael Huter. Thank you so much for supporting Trek FM and Earl Grey. Well, join us next time for another cup of Earl Grey. Things are only impossible until they're not. Today is a good day to die! Great joy and gratitude.